Ladies and gentlemen, live from the simply beautiful hills of Encino, California, where industry and nature work hand in hand to create a better life for all of us. The following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. True crime uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Joining me, of course, Howard Lapidus, executive producer of Celebrity Rehab and Dr. Drew's new exciting program on the Home Shopping Network. We're yeah. done with that. Okay. I think so. uh, we have fact checker Mark Boyer. Is that the fact? That's the fact. And the guy they call Doc Bond. It's Scott Bond. He's a professor of sociology. He's done something that only happens once in a strange while. He wrote a research book that has actually crossed over to mainstream. People are buying this thing. They just skip all the charts and graphs. <laughs> Hi, Scott. Glad to be here this evening. been reading your book, reading about you, and I also know that uh, in addition to putting together uh, concepts of sociology, criminology, and mass media, you've been studying why people are fascinated with serial killers. Yes, I am. And I uh, actually, uh, that's going to be my, my next book. I'm working on it right now. Can you give us a little bit of a hint on why we're so fascinated with uh, Norman Bates and his, uh, his ilk? Well, I think it, it, we all have um, a need to understand why individuals would do such horrific things. Uh, you know, some of these individuals not only torture, kill, in some cases dismember and even eat their victims, mm. who are, uh, generally speaking, complete strangers. Why would someone do that? I, I think there's just a profound uh, visceral interest and, and a need to know why. And um, at, a, at another level, it's almost like uh, a monster movie or a roller coaster. It, it, we're, we're just drawn to it for the uh, adrenaline rush. So oh, I think there's multiple things going on here. Well, Brent Turvey, I read an article by him where he said, well, why do they do it? He says, well, they tried it, they liked it, so they did it again. Well, yeah, I think that's partly it, but some of these individuals are just driven by compulsions that they don't even understand. Uh, I'm, I'm actually in uh, correspondence with a couple of, of notorious serial killers who fortunately are behind bars now, um, including uh, David Berkowitz and Dennis Rader, known as BTK. Oh, he's a real and, charmer, that guy. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And um, he called it Factor X. He said that there was a, uh, a drive that when it took over him, there was just no suppressing it, and it, it drove him to kill. Now, do you think that's a, an after-the-fact justification, or do you think it really does take him over that way? No, I, I think that um, in his case, I think he's being very sincere. He is, he is a true psychopath, and uh, now, not, not all psychopaths are necessarily violent people. Really, what a psychopath is, is an individual, it's, a, it's an antisocial personality disorder, uh, and a profound one. And what it literally is, is a complete disconnect from humanity and, and the inability to connect with it with um, another person emotionally, and uh, which is what allows them to do these things with no remorse. So it's like and they don't have the emotion chip. It doesn't make a difference whether they're carving a turkey or carving a person. You got it. You got it. And, and literally, uh, with BTK, he referred to his, his victims as his projects. Yeah, I, I can't even carve a turkey. <laughs> no. And my, my question, Doctor, is this, is, is okay, you're going to probably come up with, you know, a, a deeper microscope on this in your next book. But let me ask you something. Why is it then seemingly throngs, millions upon millions of people are drawn to uh, criminal minds uh, to watch shows about killers and serial killers, or, or, or CSI, or, or, or even pay attention to Burl Bear's books. You know, it, it's it, and I say that with love in a wink. <laughs> but but uh, but why why are we drawn to this? I mean, uh, 
I've got a 17-year-old daughter who loves this stuff. Loves it. Well, I am. I'm a criminologist, and and um, and and, and you're, you're you're a professional in in this area. And um, uh, I I must admit to myself just a complete fascination. And um, I, although I'm repelled at, at one level, of course, with their deeds, their acts, at the same time, I'm fascinated. And um, and that's what I was alluding to up front. I think as humans, we just have a need to know how someone could do these sorts of terrible things to to another human being. And one of my um, I'm, I am developing a, a theory about this, and that is that these individuals almost um, uh, represent the outer limits of, of uh, what what could be determined human. I mean, they, they are people, but they're doing things that often we associate with monsters or, or pure evil. And so someone like a, like a BTK or a Ted Bundy almost sets the outer limits, the, the outer boundaries of what could be considered human. Well, well, such, well, what's the, you know, are they considered still, I mean, they're animals, but are they... Uh, uh, do they think at a lesser... Well, they're devoid of empathy, for one thing. Well, they're, they're devoid of a lot of things, bro, in all seriousness. You know, and, and the question to the doctor is, is, you know, what is it? Are they, you know, you, if you say that they're on the outer end of, um, of human, I think they're, they're closer to the inner side, you know, the, the front side of humanity, you know, the, before we actually got a brain, instead of starting, you know, killing other humans or other animal types, uh, in the food chain, because isn't, isn't there a lot of food chain stuff uh, about this? Well, well, the um, you know it's like anything else, any any um, topic. Once you really delve into it, and what I'm learning is that that you know one size does not fit all when it comes to serial killers. They're they're motivated by very different things. Some of them are just have this overwhelming desire to uh, to kill, and that is the end in itself. Sometimes it's sexually motivated. Other times it's revenge. Uh, you may be familiar with a guy by the name of uh, Ed Kemper, Edmund Kemper, uh, who is um, a, again, a truly um, uh, mentally ill serial killer. It, with him, it was all about mom. Mom had literally locked him in a basement with rats and, and beaten him and, and horrifically abused him as a child. So he, he grew up fantasizing about killing his mother. I'd fantasize about killing his mother after hearing that. Yeah, but, but who <laughs> hasn't had that happen to him? Oh, come on. Absolutely. So I he thought everybody got thrown in the basement with rats. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> he, he went about killing nine other women before he finally realized his ultimate fantasy, which, which was killing mom. And once he did, he, he turned himself in. Huh. Do they always get to us? Do serial killers always get to the mark of their ultimate fantasy? That uh, well, if it's mom or if it's a uh, if it's an ex-wife or it's a problem with an early girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, whichever side of the uh, X's and Y's they're on. Well, it's it's a great question. I mean, in the case of Ed Kemper, he did have uh, a, a target, and it was mom, and it was working up to the point, and it required him to kill nine other people, nine other women, before he was able to you know realize his ultimate fantasy. In the case of BTK, there is no ultimate fantasy. It's just this overwhelming desire to kill that when it comes over him, he, he can't control himself. How can and you say that? I know you've talked to him, but how do you say that with such conviction, that there's no well, ultimate he, fantasy with BTK? He, uh, it, it, based upon our correspondence and our discussions, as well as what he has made known to, um, you know, to the world right. and uh, through, the, through the media, he, um, he was able to sustain himself 
for months, even years at a time between killings by through through fantasy and through reliving his his killings. And then for some reason that he didn't understand, he would be driven uh, or would be uh, triggered to kill again. And that would require him to go out and, and do what he called trolling, which was uh, looking for another victim. And part of the experience was, was following this person and tracking them and, and just almost like, a, like a, an animal would uh, go after its prey. And it ultimately manifested itself in, in the killing. And, um, and uh, so it was, there was no end game. There was no final prize. It was just an ongoing process. Hi, uh, uh, this is a fascinating topic uh, from, from the, what I've read and researched. There's two ways that you can have someone be a psychopath. One, they can be born that way, be like born missing the emotion chip. The other is you can make them. Uh, if you combine head injury with uh, psychological or sexual abuse or physical abuse, you can make, make one. Yes. Yes, I, I would agree with that. And there's also a distinction between a sociopath and a psychopath. Although they're, they're quite similar, the sociopath has some empathetic uh, skills, the, the ability to empathize with some individuals in certain circumstances, while others uh, not at all, while it's a psychopath truly is just missing the chip, as, as you said. And, um, and actually, the, it's the psychopath that is more difficult to see coming and to guard against because they're the ones who can truly just blend into society and their emotions don't give them away. Especially, if, especially if they're female, because you assume that females are going to be nurturing and compassionate. Exactly, exactly. And, and where, the, where the sociopath is much more likely to have a nervous personality, uh, very volatile uh, mood swings, that sort of thing, and so they're a little easier to, to detect. And, in fact, a sociopath is more likely to be um, your crazy next-door neighbor um, uh, who kicks his dog, <laughs> whereas Ted Bundy or, and BTK are, are true psychopaths. Uh, you know, there's a, a website for uh, sociopaths run by sociopaths. I don't know if you've come across that. Uh, no, I'm not aware of that. But you sure did. I, well, of course Schiz I did. Schizophrenics are us. Uh, no, no, this is uh, sociopaths. Because if you can... Uh, did, teach a sociopath that their life is going to be easier if they don't do uh, antisocial acts and because they only think about themselves that's how you get them to not do it <laughs> and so it's a sociopath talking to other sociopaths on the website and uh, it's very interesting what's the address of that? Uh, I think it's uh, I'm gonna get you .org that's perfect, <laughs> that's perfect. It's like, it sounds like sociopath group, group therapy yeah it, it, it kind of is and they also critique performances of or portrayals of sociopaths in, on television and in uh, film and books, etc., whether it's accurate or not. Do you, uh, do you perceive <laughs> That's the, a Mark Boyer, by the, way. Um, the trend in violent, uh, violent films, entertainment, video games? Do you see a connection between any of that and uh, the current crop of... Uh, like like what, the Three Stooges made me violent, that theory? Well... There's, there have been studies for decades um, in both sociology and, and psychology trying to see if there's a link between um, uh, uh, violent uh, programming or, you know, even violent cartoons and, um, and, and violence, particularly among, among children. And if there is a linkage at all, it, it, 
it's a very short-lived one. You know, if, if, if you show a child a cartoon and, um, and Wile E. Coyote, um, you know, uh, falls off the cliff when he's chasing the roadrunner, and maybe a child might mimic that uh, in, uh, you know, immediately after seeing the cartoon. But the, no one that I'm aware of has established, like, any, any long-term linkage that this, that this kind of programming leads to violent behavior. It is, it is quite popular. I, th I think that's sociologically interesting. Oh, yeah, no, and, and, and for years. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, they, they tried to outlaw uh, comic books. They tried to uh, you know, get rid of violent cartoons, uh, video games, all of that. Um, and, but I have never seen any really uh, uh, strong evidence or compelling arguments that, that there is a, a causal relationship there between violent programming and violent now, being as if that Mark mentioned the comic books, I want—I think this gives us an opportunity to to smoothly transition into the uh, the topic of uh, your latest book, which is Moral Panic. I can remember back when I was much younger, there seemed to be a, what I guess would be defined as a moral panic about what these comic books are doing to the youth of America. Rock and roll, and rock and roll too, is the devil's tool. So is dancing, detente, and dark-skinned citizens. Uh, yep. Can you define the characteristics of what a moral panic is sure uh, a moral panic is first of all is a is a uh, sociological concept that was developed by uh, a criminologist over in the UK his name is Stan Cohen and it was developed in the late 1960s or early 70s part of his doctoral dissertation and what, what he argued was that there are there are times where it seems to be in the best mutual interests of law enforcement uh, and the, the powers that be and politicians to uh, uh, create a panic over a particular situation or a group of people. And um, it oftentimes leads to legislation or uh, action that is really overly excessive and perhaps not uh, necessary at all. So it's essentially a, a hysteria situation. Now, there's and, an example in your book of uh, of Las Vegas, Nevada, and the Latino gang problem. Could you could give us a, right. uh, give this explain that one? Okay, sure. Um, it was in the the 1980s, and there was a, a report uh, that came out in in the local press that was um, linked, and and the quote, quotes were coming from local law enforcement that um, gang uh, involvement and and the initiation into gangs was. Uh, uh, had had uh, exponentially uh, increased in the, in the previous 12 months. And what this led to was a immediately an up-ramp in, in both um, uh, uh, police uh, action and hiring new cops and creating a gang uh, unit. And the local uh, authority, or excuse me, the local media, television, radio, newspapers got all over it. And it almost became a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if you, if you say something is reality and and you, and you uh, uh, beat the drum long enough, it, it, it becomes real. And, um, and so the, within 12 months, the, uh, the city of Las Vegas was in a full-blown panic, thinking that gangs were completely out of control. But subsequently, after the fact, when they really looked at, at um, arrests and uh, incarceration rates and, and gang membership, there, there, it basically was a flat line. There never, there never was uh, really a gang problem. It was at, at like 2% or 3% of the total uh, violent crimes in Las Vegas, and, and it was stable. So, so it was, it, it was a, a manufactured panic. Let's blow that up bigger. Let's, uh, let's talk about uh, Al-Qaeda. Sure. What do we have to be afraid of right now? 
Should I be afraid of what should, should I, as an American citizen driving around Encino, California, what should I be afraid of? Getting hit by a car. <laughs> well, there's that part. Genius giving you a call. Hey, your, your wife, yeah. That's a possibility. Yeah. Both both are uh, strong possibilities. But the truth is, is what? I mean, uh, I asked this. To, I asked the same question to some Navy SEALs recently. What What don't we know? What's real and what's Memorex? And you are in the Memorex business. I mean, seemingly you see the conspiracy to all of this stuff. Um, are you you asking me about a, a conspiracy just generally about about uh, it turned, uh, about it, terrorism, Scott? It turned out I was asking you the, that generally. Yeah, let's 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 live there for a minute. Well, in a in a in a general sense, I mean, I, I guess my my reaction would be uh, as a nation, we need to be certainly wary. We need to be uh, aware. And, but uh, at the same time, we shouldn't just accept at face value everything that we're told, and because sometimes it's in the interest of those who have um, either can benefit from it financially or political political gain uh, or political influence in some way to scare the heck out of people. So it was nine eleven real, or my, my personal belief is that the event itself was real that uh, I mean there there are the the truthers who believe that uh, you know somehow the CIA or the FBI or the Bush administration blew up the World Trade Center I, I'm certainly not in, in, in that boat um, I, I think it at, at, if anything the Bush administration was asleep at the wheel um, that uh, there were some indications that they might have followed up on about the the attack itself my, my book um, uh, uh, mass deception is about the events that followed 9-11 and the lead-up to the Iraq War. And essentially, my, the argument of my book is, one, that the Bush administration did a bait-and-switch with 9-11 and used it as uh, a basis to target Iraq and manufactured a panic about Iraq. And then the second part of my, of my book, the second argument, is um, through the actual invasion and occupation of Iraq, that they committed war crimes. So it's really a twofold argument that I make. So it's uh, it's Vegas times a thousand. Right, 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 right. Exactly. A trillion and a half dollars later, and you know, tens of thousands of Iraqis and thousands of Americans. Now, I'd like you uh, to. I think one of the there are four components that have to exist for something to be defined as moral panic. Is it four or five, something like that? Five. Yeah. What, what, can five. you tell us what they are? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, I'll, just, I'll give you the list, and then I'll, I'll give you a quick recap on which what each one is. There's concern, consensus, hostility, disproportionality, and volatility. Um, so Cohen argues, Stan Cohen, the guy who came up with this concept, said for something to truly be a moral panic situation, uh, you have to have all five. And concern is simply um, uh, uh, the fact that there is a, a, a belief in society that something represents a problem, um, and in this case, the problem being an alleged imminent threat from, uh, from Iraq. And th- then there has to be some consensus about it. And that doesn't mean 100% of the people have to believe it. It just means that there has to be you know, probably 51% or better. And in the case of the Iraq war, Seventy percent of the U.S. population on uh, March 19th of 2003, which was the day the invasion uh, took place, that Iraq, first of all, did have these massive stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction. Also, that they um, uh, were involved with uh, 9/11, 
and uh, that, that invading Iraq was the right thing to do. So 70% of the population bought the, um, you know, bought the campaign, bought the, uh, the pre-war. Oh, the book is called Mass Deception, Moral Panic in the U.S. War on Iraq. We're going to take a 60-second break, Doctor, and we'll be right back with you. Okay. Some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. Are you too busy to do your monthly breast self-exam? Unsure of the right technique? My name is Cam, and I'd like to help. Let me examine your breast for you. Absolutely free. I'm highly trained and highly motivated, so call the number on your screen. Call takers are standing by. So put your breasts in my hands. Let Cam do your breast exam. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. I am Burl Bear. Joining me, Howard Lapidus, fact checker Mark Boyer, Dr. Scott Bond, author of the new book, Mass Deception, Moral Panic, and the U.S. War on Iraq, which has a uh, new theory of interlocking criminology, sociology, and media uh, studies. But we were talking about the five ingredients of moral panic. You have to have these five uh, interconnected things in order to qualify. Am I correct? You are correct. And uh, the first two that we talked about before the break, uh, concern and consensus. Uh, and then the third is hostility. And what hostility is is, is generally a, a sense of moral outrage toward the, uh, toward the target. So uh, the Bush administration was very effective in, in demonizing Saddam Hussein and, and uh, his followers, that they were you know, evildoers. And so that was very, very effectively done by them. And the fourth element is uh, disproportionality, and this is key. This is where the alleged threat is far greater than the actual threat itself. And uh, the Bush administration built this, this case that if we didn't act immediately, if we, if we didn't go in and, and go after these massive stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction, that we might have another 9-11, that they would allude to things like mushroom clouds, meaning, you know, of course, a nuclear attack, and uh, therefore we had to act immediately. And, and, and as we know, there were no weapons of mass destruction, there were no ties to 9-11, so uh, uh, clearly it was disproportional, and, um, and that's 
that is absolutely key to the moral panic. And then the final one is, is referred to as volatility. And what volatility means is that the, the concern in society, the, the fear and the concern uh, regarding this situation, there's sort of an ebb and flow that tends to follow both the, the words of the, of the politicians who are making the claim as well as the media who are paying attention to it. And this is where my analysis came in, and I really believe that the, um, one of the key contributions of my, of my book and, uh, is the fact that um, I demonstrate not only that propaganda uh, uh, has an effect, and, you know, many people, people like Noam Chomsky have argued that, that uh, you know, propaganda works, but I actually show how it works by uh, showing a series of public opinion polls over a two-year period leading up to the Iraq war, which measures the, the public's willingness to go to war. And uh, I then um, uh, did an overlay of the rhetoric of the Bush administration, and there are terms like evildoers, axis of evil, madmen, all those, those, uh, those terms. And as that rhetoric cranked up, as it got louder and louder, louder the war drums uh, were banging, it directly mirrored public opinion. So... so how did, I mean, you clearly, I mean, I talked about conspiracy earlier, but clearly when you look at, at, at Stan Cohen's five, uh, call them tenets of uh, moral panic, moral panic um, mm-hmm. you clearly think that the Iraq war was complete bull. So, so follow, if you would. Find what did they sit in a room one day and did somebody say, "All right, there's these five things. Here's what we have to do." We just and and, and it was a group. Is this a, a group of evil men sitting in Washington? Uh, and, and by the way, I, I'm, I'm on your side. But let's mm-hmm. let's say there's a, a group of evil guys sitting in Washington thinking this stuff up. Like, look, we think up TV shows or books or whatever. That's what we do. We sit there and we think it up. I have I have a slightly different take. Well, I'm asking in the middle of a question, and 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 and, and it's like, is that what we had in Washington? Uh, I would say no. There's, there's a, another concept that, that uh, we look at frequently in um, sociology that's referred to as groupthink. And what groupthink is, uh, oftentimes you'll have a, a group of people at the top of uh, a corporation or the top of the pe- pecking order in um, uh, uh, at, you know, any social group or, or politicians, the leaders, who sort of essentially have uh, something that they believe to be true and they want to be true, and what they do is they go out and cherry-pick evidence and, and find things that support their point of view, and anything that, they, that doesn't, they reject. And, um, and I think that's what you had here. I mean, we know Scott McClellan has reported in his book, Bush's own ghost uh, writer, Mickey uh, Herskowitz, um, had, um, had reported that as far back as when Bush was still governor of Texas, he had said that if he ever gets a chance to go after Saddam Hussein, he's going to do it, and meaning if he got in the White House. And so what I believe happened in the case of, of 9-11, it, it opened that window. It created that opportunity, and then you had other neocons like, uh, like Dick Cheney and, uh, and Rumsfeld that um, even though their personal um, um, uh, agenda and their reasons for wanting to go to war might have been different than Bush's, it all kind of dovetailed nicely, and it just all fell into place that this was a... Um, how, how did they get the consensus to 70%? What did uh, they through, do? Through, through mass... Well, 
through lies and deception, uh, first of all, uh, lying about the, uh, the the weapons of mass destruction. And, what, can, and, I, and, can I interject real quick, please? Yeah. Sure. Um, at the time that they started this, <clears throat> did they know for a fact there were none at that moment in time? Or yeah, did they truly believe the, there are were? You, are you familiar with the Downing Street memo? Go ahead. The Downing Street memo is um, was British uh, M16, Brit- British uh, Secret Service, uh, had reported back in 2002, that early 2002, that uh, that based upon their discussions with the CIA and, and as well as the inner circle of the Bush administration, that they they were convinced British intelligence was convinced that the Bush administration was committed to doing anything, including manufacturing evidence in order to make a case for war with Iraq. That goes back to 2002. And the Downing Street memo was leaked to the, uh, the London Times in 2005. Okay, go on. I just, I just wanted to make that clear, mm-hmm. uh, that um, from the information that we currently have, that uh, we believe that the Bush administration knew that there were none, but they Absolutely. promoted it anyways. No, absolutely, and um, and also the Senate Intelligence uh, Report, the final Senate Intelligence Report that came out in 2006 that basically did an investigation into what the Bush administration knew. Their conclusion was that the Bush administration knew that the evidence that they were using to make the claims against Iraq were, were bogus, but they used them anyway. Now, so what? So then, the question is going to come up. I mean, maybe outside the realm of of your book and your study. And I want to make it clear to people that when you're doing a scientific study, you can't go in with preconceived ideas because then it's going to not work right. You know, your your book has all the charts and graphs and the you know the percentages and the. You did, you did, I mean, give us a little bit of of how you approach this so it just doesn't sound like us like you have some sort of political agenda. Right. Right. Um... As, that's a great question. I, in, in 2002, 2003, I was um, very much looking at, at communication research and, and how the media influenced public opinion in my own work. And I was, I was reading a lot about this moral panic concept. And historically, the moral panic concept had really been applied to smaller situations, like the gang situation there in Las Vegas that you uh, referred to. And, but, but as I listened to the Bush administration banging the, the drums louder and louder toward Iraq, I said to myself, this feels very much like a, uh, a moral panic situation. And, uh, and, and even at that time, I, I said to myself, there doesn't seem to be any evidence or any imminent threat here by Iraq, and yet we're being told that, that there is. So that's when I decided to do this um, analysis over a couple of year period and actually look at the uh, look at the rhetoric of the Bush administration and see what how it was affecting public opinion. And so that took a lot of work, I would imagine. You have to, oh, you have yeah. to get every single statement released by that particular administration over a period of time, both before 9/11 and after 9/11. I, I, what I did is my, my primary source was the was the New York Times, and I, I literally went through five thousand newspaper articles a year and a half before nine eleven and a year and a half after nine eleven that led up to the the day the war started, and I compared the rhetoric uh, before and after. And but uh, lest your any of your your listeners might think that well the New York Times we know is a, a liberal newspaper. Um, I, I used it, but I only used quotes by the Bush administration itself. 
So uh, there was no reporter's uh, bias uh, included in it. I only actually put into the analysis where there were direct quotes by the Bush administration about the um, alleged uh, alleged um, uh, uh, threat from, from Iraq. You know, talk to me a bit about how it's easy now, and easier now in 2012 certainly than it was 30 years ago, um, to, uh, to use the media to actually change the consensus quickly. Uh, it, um, let's talk about the belly of the media beast. It's so much bigger, rounder, deeper, uh, mm-hmm. and vast, uh, you know, with CNN, Fox, uh, HLN, on down the line. Um, you know, there's just a lot of hours that have to be filled. I mean, yep. today it's, uh, you know, they get locked out today. They're, they're running the Whitney Houston feud. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think you bring up a wonderful point. Uh, it, there's, there's, a, um, there's so many outlets that are desperate for content that I think there's sometimes that they, they just don't fact-check properly. And there, there's a rush to a conclusion before a real um, uh, 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 thought-provoking uh, analysis and, and fact-checking is done. And, in fact, I, I would argue that the situation after 9-11 provided an absolutely perfect canvas or backdrop on which the Bush administration, if you'll allow me the analogy, could paint this moral panic because society was, was you know, very much of a knee-jerk situation after 9-11. And uh, we, uh, we were told that you know, by the Bush administration, you're either with us or against us. There's only good people and bad people, and there was a, a tendency not to critique, not to uh, question. And so if you were ever going to create a panic situation, it was an ideal scenario. And I think that the media, uh, the mainstream media, uh, sort of just passively went along. And, and uh, you know, I'm, not, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist here. I'm not saying that the... Uh, no, 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 but no, go, go, go ahead, finish, I'm sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, I'm not saying that the major media companies sat down with the Bush administration and said, how can we scare the hell out of the public and sell a war? You don't think Roger Ailes flew into Washington and said, I'm going to give you the Fox, I'm going to give you Fox News. Come on. I don't, I don't think quite, quite that way. Oh, no, the, I think, the, so he didn't have to fly in. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't have to make the trip. I mean, I, mean, I, can, I can still remember um, Bill O'Reilly on his talking point saying support the war or shut the f up. Well, he works for Roger Ailes. I, I mean, you know, so it's it, it's 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 a Roger Ailes uh, uh, you talk about conspiracy. I'll talk about it all day. I don't even think it's a conspiracy. I think it's in front of us. We see it. It's every single day. I can show you the ratings and show you how they work. You know that, uh, Dr. Bob. Oh, sure. You know, sure. you know, I mean, hell, we Well, when you were when you were at NBC, was it General Electric uh, owned it, right? Yeah, yeah, they certainly did. And uh, wasn't GE uh, in a little bit of trouble? And uh, weren't they getting their uh, their hands slapped on some unethical or illegal behaviors? And uh, tell us what you saw at NBC on terms of coverage of that. Oh yeah, well, it's just a further indication of of how um, you know there there really is no true objective uh, journalism. It, it's it's all serving an agenda of of some sort. And yeah, it's a, that's a great a great question. The um, uh, NBC, when it was owned by General Electric, which of course you know the huge conglomerate. And um, and every year, General Electric is pretty much the number one company that is fined uh, for something, whether it be uh, 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 false advertising or faulty products or you know, or uh, 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 dumping toxic waste into the water somewhere. And uh, so I did a little analysis looking across the television networks to see who was reporting uh, NBC's infractions. And so, Jeez, you know, CBS. Yeah, uh, uh, CBS, 
um, ABC, Fox, they all reported upon this stuff. But NBC, no, not one story, not one story um, during the, uh, the. So, is there was period. there a smoking gun internally? Did you did you know where the memo was? Was there a memo, or was it just no. a lot of nods in the hallway? I think I think it's much more nods in the hallway. Okay. Um, it's it's. Um, uh, Any time you have a, a for profit situation, um, you're not going to have a complete journalistic uh, freedom. It's just not. It's not going to exist. Look, look, I've got a background in journalism. I happen to love journalism and, and real journalism, the journalism that we knew and that you know about, Doctor. But the. You know, I mean, I've gotten to the point where call me cynical, but the truth is, for me, that I believe 99% of what I read in the National Enquirer, I'm not kidding, okay, and I'll tell you why in a second, I believe about 60% of what I read in the L.A. Times. Because I think the L.A. Times is crap. I think it's been journalistically compromised beyond, okay? Mm-hmm. But but the National Enquirer and American Media decided a bunch of years ago that enough with the lawsuits. Let's spend money, illegal money, on vetting our stories and making sure that we've got the story for real instead of defending lawsuits. And mm-hmm. that's that's exactly how they operate. So you've got uh, uh, the National Enquirer, Star Magazine, all the American media outlets that actually have the story cold. They got you cold if they got you. Mm-hmm. They've got you cold. I promise you that. And and uh, uh, but uh, I I have seen and been in the middle of the L.A. Times in situations where they just don't even ask the right questions to the right people at the right time and get the right answers before they form conclusions that they print as fact. Can he ever stop just to let you have a word in edgewise, Burl? <laughs> With your permission, and I am just a lowly producer, but what I'm hearing is, uh, well, four uh, included the, the guest on the, the phone, but the great Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus and uh, MarkCGBoyer.com, and it is a it is a le- liberal, mutual, masturbatory society here. Wouldn't it be nice to have someone on the other side with their facts? Because this is this is such a giant uh, cum guz. That's exactly what's going on in this oh, show Okay, right so now. what are it the facts? Me, it makes me ill. You've got the doctor here. Well, hang on, Matt. You've got the doctor here. This guy's yeah, got. You see, I don't. I don't have the. I don't have the phone. The Downing Street memo. P.S. The Bo- Bush was planning this invasion seven months prior to the Downing Street memo, which no one talks about. But they also probably have on shelves the the um, going after Canada. They have plans of attack for every country and every nation that are sitting there. You know, I love this BS conspiracy crap. And your author <laughs> keeps saying, well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. It's a crock of crap. Okay, so doctor. You're, you're, so you're, you're agreeing with my point then that they were planning to uh, uh, go after Iraq before 9 He, of course, walks away from the argument. <laughs> He'll drop a bomb, and then, you know, there's this That's carpet. That's my reason. Oh, I here brought, he comes. I brought, Wait a second. You, it, it, got four, you got four of you, you, you guys jerking So come on off. in. Oh, but during the regular show, you got five of you guys. P.S. I always have dissenting thoughts and positions on my program. So here always. you are as the executive producer of this show. Mm-hmm. Step into the microphone. You have and access to the By the way, the Howard, guest. when you become producer and you have your own radio show, you, my friend, can then tell me what to do. 
I'm not telling you what to do. Yes, I'm suggesting the, the, as the yes, executive producer. You said, pl- you said step onto the microphone. So step onto I the did. microphone. I made my point. And then you carpet bomb and leave. Because I have work to do, you big dummy. <laughs> Scott like that. Anyway, so Scott, as I tried... I, just, I, I feel like I've been napalmed. <laughs> no, <laughs> carpet bomb, napalmed. As I tried to bring up the point earlier that, this, that in order to do a scientific study, you can't have an agenda. You must have learned some things that surprised you when you did this. Of course oh, yeah, there's an yeah. agenda! <laughs> but this, this is one thing that I, that I thought was absolutely fascinating, is um, the, uh, the Gallup organization, you know, which, is a, which is an independent organization, they, they asked the question, uh, do you favor or oppose invading Iraq uh, with, a, with the goal of, of removing Saddam Hussein from power. They asked that question the first time, less than two weeks after Bush took office in 2001, you know, January of 2001. And that, that what was wonderful because it gave me a baseline for public opinion before 9-11, you know, the, the willingness of the American public to go to war. But I scratched my head and I said, this is this is incredible. They, the, the Gallup organization has never asked this question before. Should we go to war in, in Iraq? And I'm talking about, you know, since the, uh, the Gulf War of, you know, uh, uh, 91. Uh, but, but they never asked it during the Clinton administration. And there were still, at that time, allegations about, you know, with uh, Iraq not complying with um, uh, weapons inspections and so forth. But two weeks, less than two weeks after Bush took office, they asked that question. And then they didn't ask it again until immediately after 9-11. Isn't that interesting? Well, how did it occur to them to ask? Well, thank you for asking me that. And I actually wrote a letter to the Gallup organization, and I I asked them that very question. Why did you ask this question, um, you know, less than two weeks after Bush took office? And their answer was, we don't give out our our strategies. (laughs) But but I I would say that a a sane person, and uh, you can decide for yourself if I'm sane or not, but I I would say that a sane person could only come to one of two possible conclusions. Either the, 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 the folks at the Gallup organization suspected that it was already on the Bush administration's agenda to invade Iraq, and therefore they wanted to measure the public opinion, or someone at the White House lifted the phone and said, gee, we have a question we'd like you to um, ask on behalf of the new president. I mean, I, I don't know what other possibilities there are. Hmm. Okay, well, looking, looking in your book, because there's a few terms I want to define here. In critical criminology, the harmful actions of the power elite are generally not defined as criminal because they, the power elite, have control over the major institutions in U.S. society, including criminal justice. When we talk about crime, we always think of crimes against people, crimes against the state. Very seldom do we ever conceptualize state crime. Right. What, from a criminologist's standpoint, what is state crime? Okay, uh, state crime is uh, those actions of the government that cause harm to society. And it could be, that harm can take many different forms. It could be in the, uh, the, the, the death of individuals, or it could even take the form of just cynicism. Um, a lot of people became very cynical and, and angry after they realized that the Bush administration had misled them into war. So harm, there can be moral harm, and there can also then be, you know, really tangible um, uh, physical harm as well. Well, we see the and, state crime, I mean, if you want to look at Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein was certainly... His regime was certainly doing a lot of state crime. 
Absolutely, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that the U.S. had carte blanche to go over and, um, uh, and, and start a war. And, in fact, the second part of my book, if you'll, uh, would allow me to make a transition, sure. is uh, all about the, uh, the war crimes of the Bush administration. And um, uh, the reality is that the preemptive strike against Iraq even though the Bush administration alluded to these weapons of mass destruction, was still an, uh, an, uh, a war crime. So the, uh, the, the, the three bodies that essentially define the, uh, war crimes are the Geneva Conventions, the Nuremberg Charter, and the, uh, the UN Charter. And all of them make it very clear that um, an unprovoked attack is, uh, is an act of war. And the Bush administration tried to get around that, by uh, coming up with this uh, so-called Bush doctrine of preemptive self-defense. Now, I don't know about you, but preemptive <laughs> self-defense is an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp. Well, you know? well it is. You can't use that in a, in, a, in a court of law. If you shoot someone, because I just wrote a book about this, as a matter of fact, you can't shoot someone and say, I did it because I was afraid he was going to do something to me. So you why, got it. Why, why did, uh, did Bush want to attack Saddam Hussein. Is it the, the daddy thing? I think it's a, it's a combination of factors. I think he, he made it very clear that there was a personal vendetta. You know, he, he tried to kill my dad. And um, so I think there was the personal aspect of it. And um, that is reflected in the symbol that he kept on his desk after Saddam Hussein was captured in the whole, you know, eating candy bars in, in Iraq. And that was the ivory uh, pistol, ivory handled pistol of Saddam Hussein that he kept on the uh, his desk in the in the Oval Office. So yes, I would say that that part of it was personal. I think part of it, a big part of it, is oil. The five percent of the world's oil reserves that Iraq represents. Um, I also think geopolitical advantage. If you uh, want to strike against another one of those so-called axis of evil folks, Iran, then what better than to be right next door? You know, another beachhead in the Middle East. I think that was all part of it. Hmm. Uh, someone's about, uh, Matt's trying to ask a question. Did you want to ask a question, Matt? Yeah, I'd like to invite him on uh, Outlaw Radio at 3.08 this afternoon. If you'd like, if you'd if you, like, if you want to come on to his show and get carpet bombed some more, but talk about your study and whatever. No, no, wait, carpet bombed by whom? <laughs> no, yeah. no, maybe some dialogue with folks with folks from the other side, and and if this man is as knowledgeable as he seems and, and obviously articulate, then he'll have no problem speaking to someone with dissenting views. Does that sound okay, okay to you, Doc? Sure, 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 why not? Yeah, sure, great. Call yeah. back the same number. Yeah, ex exact same number. Just call back uh, when this show's over. Wait. Uh, just don't repeat the number on the air. Yeah, we, the same number. You know the number. We don't take calls from our listeners. We call them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, our friend Ralphie. Oh, boy, I wish I could stay. Yeah. I can't you stay can't today. stay today? Can't, no, I cannot stay. My friend stay Ralphie uh, asked a question uh, about the uh, the world courts and, and, and uh, war crimes, etc. There's been like 139 different uh, countries or charges of war crimes, and you never see anybody prosecuted for this stuff except, what, who? You can name them on one finger, practically. Yeah, so it's usually, you know, uh, small African countries that tend to be the ones who are, who are prosecuted. You know, it's, it's good to be the 900-pound gorilla in the, in the world order. You know, you're just not likely to be prosecuted. Does it matter what side of, um, of politics we're on? Uh, it's always good to be the 900-pound gorilla, right? Well, pretty much, yeah. I mean, you, if you when you are, you you pretty much get to set the the, the rules. And uh, the U.S. has a pr 
permanent veto vote on the UN Security Council, so they can block any investigation um, into but, affairs. But anyway. should we be taking out our personal vendettas against other countries? No, no. I, I, would, I would say absolutely <laughs> okay. not. Well, there's a difference here. I want to be clear between personal, uh, his personal opinions, and his scholarly study. There is there uh, uh, one thing that I, uh, many things that I enjoyed about your approach in the book, of course, being as it is a written as a soci- sociology text or study and not as a popularist book, this happens to be catching on with the general public, which I'm interested in, uh, is that you even, you bring up uh, counter-arguments to your own arguments in terms of, of whether this is a top-down moral panic or bottom-up, uh, areas of further study. Uh, so, I mean, you're, you're really open to, to taking other, other approaches to this study. Well, it, it, to be, to be, um, uh, have any, any rigor, you know, and, and to be, uh, you know, to be fair to, um, uh, dissenting views, uh, I believe it's important to con- consider, um, alternatives. And so that's what I tried to do in my book. And, and you're right. It, it's, it, I really, I had two audiences in mind when, when I wrote this book. One was, uh, sort of an, you know, an academic audience as well as uh, a general audience. And I'm very pleased that uh, the public has, has taken an interest in it. Now, I want to get back for a minute on this thing of, of war crimes, because Ralph asked, why don't you ever see, uh, uh, you know, uh, the PLO or Hamas or this person, that person ever charged with war crimes? Well, the, the, in order to be charged with a, a war crime, uh, the, it, it has to either come out of the, the U.N. Security Council or there, it has to be initiated by the, uh, the the prosecutor of the of at the Hague, the World Court, and and the only way it can happen is if either the party that is bringing the claim is uh, uh, recognizes the authority of the World Court, or the party that uh, created the infraction in the first place is a party to the the World Court. So, for example, the the, the situation here with uh, the United States in Iraq. It uh, uh, has not been prosecuted and, and never will be because neither the United States nor Iraq recognize the authority of the world court. So that settles that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a heck of a deal. So, But this same theory, the same approach, uh, I mean, you, you did your study on the U.S. war on Iraq based on the moral panic concept. But you applied some new things to it. One reason that the book is getting uh, scholarly attention is, is you bring in your media studies uh, acumen into this, along with the criminology and sociology. Well, that's that. That's what the, this gets brilliant. This, yeah. uh, this is therein it lies. You well, know, this where, is where, back where in the old days where the the army had intelligence, the navy had intelligence, the air force had intelligence, and one didn't share with the other. Uh, you have <laughs> you have the criminology studies, you have the sociology studies, and you have the media. Uh, mass communication studies, but uh, it surprises me that these disciplines had not all been brought together previously. Well, I, I appreciate that, and, and um, it's really because, uh, as you mentioned up front of, of the show, that uh, I worked in the media for over 20 years myself before becoming an academic, so I think it was having those inside uh, uh, knowledge or the insights from having worked at NBC Television and uh, and working, um, you know, with the mass media, that I that I kind of knew the questions to ask, or I had a sense of how uh, how um, news is produced, because news, is, as as we've kind of alluded to here, is a product. You know, it's 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 not just objective uh, uh, facts. It's it's 
literally a product that is packaged up and, and distributed just like uh, Coca-Cola. Look, around and the network, they call it a show. Yeah, exactly. It's entertainment. It's entertainment right. news. And, and what about uh, product launches? Let's get... <laughs> ah, yes, 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 yes. The, um, if there is any... Any doubt among, uh, among your listeners whether the Iraq war was really brought to you by an advertising campaign by the, by the Bush administration, on page 80 of my, of my book, I, uh, I have a, a, a direct quote from Andy Card, who was, the, uh, was then the, um, the, the chief of staff of the White House uh, for Bush. And in early fall of 2002, September of 2002, just months before the Iraq war was initiated, he was asked by the press corps one morning, why is it um, uh, that, that uh, you know, we, we haven't heard an announcement about whether or not we're going to war? You know, we hear about this imminent threat of weapons of mass destruction. We've heard it all summer long. But, you know, what's going on? And this is a direct quote from Andy Card. He said, from a marketing point of view, you don't introduce new products over the summer. You don't introduce new products in the summer. Yes. So the war was the product they were going to introduce once the summer was over. You got it, which they did in March of 2003. They, yeah, they, 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 they blew it up in spring. Yep. What's well, a great deal. Well, wasn't, this isn't the first time it was done. I'm sure it wasn't the last time it was done. Look at the, uh, uh, the famous citizen, Citizen Kane. It's also in real life when William Randolph Hearst sent a journalist to Cuba to report on what appeared to be a coming war. And the fellow sends back a message that says, I could give you prose poems about the beauty of Cuba, but there's no war. And Hearst mm-hmm. sent back a message that said, you provide the prose poems, I'll provide the war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Spanish-American War was um, was definitely uh, driven by propaganda, without a doubt. And so we've had the examples of Las Vegas, <laughs> which I used to live there, so I'm familiar with that one, and uh, the Spanish-American War. War, and you've applied these concepts to the war on Iraq. Uh, there must be some other uh, uh, other other examples of moral panic out there. But uh, are we more susceptible to it now than when, say we were 20, 30 years ago? I don't know that it, it, we're necessarily more susceptible to it. But certainly, you can't escape the, the media, and uh, it, it uh, you know whether it's your iPhone or or uh, 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 laptop or 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 ThinkPad or whatever it might be. I mean, the media is is unrelenting, and um, you know I have some concerns right now with this whole thing with Iran. You know, there there are allegations now of, of uh, Iran and connections with Al Qaeda, and uh, that are that are being attributed to unnamed sources. And every time you have unnamed sources, you have to say, hmm, what's going on here, you know? Um, so are we potentially looking at another situation like that? I, well, I, I could know. talk to you all day, Scott. Yeah. And, 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 and the guys will be talking to you. I have to run, but uh, Thanks a lot this was my pleasure. Thanks. We hope to have you back soon. The book is called Mass Deception, Moral Panic, and the U.S. War in Iraq by Dr. Scott Bond, who is a former media guy from NBC. He's also now a sociologist and a criminologist. And legendary Burl Bear, I want you to know it's with your permission that he will be on our show at 305 because he is your guest. Well, as he agrees and I agree, we all agree. Okay. (laughs) I don't agree because I have to leave. Well, you can listen at home on your iPhone, your iPad. You can't escape media, Howard. No, you can't. It's everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness. You're on the plastic pony in front of us. Yeah. So uh, call back in about uh, 15 minutes. (laughs) Sounds sounds great. And um, I have a website, www.docbond.com and uh, you can check out uh, my, my postings and articles there as well. 
Fantastic. Always a pleasure working with you, Doctor. Yeah, I wish we had another several more hours, which apparently we do. So (laughs) I'll be talking to you again soon. Thanks a lot, Doc. So listen to Outlaw Radio if you want to hear more of this gentleman. Yeah, Magic Matt Allen's The Demons of Decadence, live from the Light Up Lounge, setting the standard for beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry. Huh. <laughs> Pardon me while I rock and roll. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the soapily beautific hills of Encino, California, where industry and nature work hand in hand to create a better life for all of us. The following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. Hi, I'm the legendary Burl Bear. Welcome to True Crime Uncensored. Howard Lapidus is at a baseball game, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he's a real sportsman. He's out there probably sliding home right now. <laughs> Now Mark, he's watching his Sunday. Yeah, Mark C.G. Boyer, fact checker, joins me today. Maybe Laurie Dowdy Jr. from Long Island will join us because uh, we got Dr. Scott Bond. Hi, Scott. Hi there. How are you? Great to have you back on the show. Last time you were here, you were so much fun. Uh, Matt called you back for another hour. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's right. We got into a little little political discussion there. Yeah, yeah. Which, which brings me to the first thing I want to ask you. Yeah, but not what he's wearing. Not what he's wearing. I only ask that to the females. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear. But being as a, a media guy, I mean, I'm former VP at NBC, got a background in advertising, marketing, and all that stuff. Now you become a sociologist and a criminologist. And in yes. that field, you're doing a lot of empirical research. You have to just follow the facts wherever they take you. As you are probably aware, there was an uh, internal crisis in the world of journalism about a week and a half ago on how journalists deal with this new concept that facts don't matter. <laughs> and if you... No, that's not a liberal concept. This, this is the point I'm getting at, is that wh- no matter what your political persuasion is, when you're doing empirical research, you can't approach your study with to the lefties or the righties. You have to just go with whatever the data is. How does one do that in this current climate without people saying you have an agenda, whether it be left or right? Great question, and I don't think you can in the environment that we live in right now. It's, it's a environment where the, there's so many media outlets and everyone is vying for either listenership or viewership or, or just share of, uh, share of mind. And the only way to break through and get, get the attention of an audience is really to be more sensational than the next guy. And sensational does not equal facts. <laughs> <You know? laughs> sensational equals as, as crazy and, and outrageous as we can, we can make it. And that's really what you almost have to do now as a media outlet in order to get people to tune in. Because let's face it, does it really matter whether you hear the story about um, uh, a, uh, a break-in, um, a, you know, a crime story, or even a, a political story for that matter, whether it's on ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, Fox, etc., the story is the story, but what matters is the spin, you know, and so people really t- tune in for the spin uh, on the uh, on the story. Uh, Mark has a question. They, um, I, when I was in college, we had a, a saying, um, pl- draw your graph before you plot your data. And that seems to be the modus operandi these days is that the conclusion comes first. 
Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And, you know, numbers don't lie, but people do, you know, and you can you can jerry rig those numbers to tell the story that you want. Or and, and, it, and also by excluding information, you know, you're not technically lying. Maybe uh, if you tell a part of the story or a portion of the uh, information, you're not technically lying if you exclude, but it might tell a completely different story by excluding key information. That's interesting. I had a class on statistical analysis, a uh, math class, and mm-hmm. a significant portion was how to, how to, how to reference or adjust and or display the data mm-hmm. to present what you want to present. Yep. How to manipulate the information so it's still accurate, but. But twisted. (laughs) Yes, emphasize that aspect of it that that tells your story the best, uh, without a doubt. Right, and And there was no underlying intent to fraud, but I just thought it was an interesting. Oh, absolutely. And and, and you think about, um, you know, for example, if. in a political situation, a political environment, let's say at the local level, and someone is running for um, for mayor, or let's say you're the the, uh, the chief of a local police department, it might be in your best interest for crime to be going up, depending upon what the scenario is, or it might be better for crime to be going down. If you are, are if you're looking for re-election, you probably want to be able to say that crime is going down. If you are in the process of, of uh, running for election and you want a larger budget. Then you might want to scare the hell out of people and say, no, crime is on the rise. So elect me, I'll, I'll end it, and, and I need more money and resources to do it. So, you know, it, the, the context in sociology, we talk about the, 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 the social context, the political time and place, is really the backdrop on which um, plaques, facts play themselves out. So um, uh, the, the the environment that you're in really matters, and um, and and so, for example, um, the the way that uh, race uh, has played out in in the United States. I mean, it's certainly better to be a black person in America in 2012 than it was in 1912 or 1812. Um, but yet, we're you know, we're it's. Uh, I would argue that as a sociologist, that race still matters. There's there's inequality in the country, but it's certainly better than it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Now, this same concept plays out a lot in criminology and crime solving. And a lot of people don't often notice the correlation, but we have had people on the show, uh, recently the author of the book Scapegoat, where despite the facts that they had and witnesses who said that the killers were two white guys in an Oldsmobile, they found out there was an escaped uh, black guy down the block, and they stopped searching for the white guys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, sure. and that guy's still doing life in prison, despite the one the person who survived the attack going, that's not him. <laughs> that's not mm-hmm, him. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and having worked with homicide detectives uh, on a, Sp- a Spokane serial killer case that went on for years, they had to follow those leads wherever it took them. And it got to the point where they thought maybe one of the homicide task force was the killer. They were willing to mm-hmm. follow the leads anywhere. Because you just you can't start with a supposition and then try to prove it while you're trying to catch a killer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, I uh, you know, and and of course, to exploit those kind of situations too, 
about a year ago when I was um, uh, doing a number of interviews talking about the Long Island uh, serial killer. Yeah, Lori's from Long is, Island. <laughs> yeah, which is which is which is still you know very much an open and ongoing investigation. I I got a call from um, a, a radio station down south. I think it was in in North Carolina, and because she had the the. Um, uh, the host of this local show in, in North Carolina had picked up on a, a statement that I had made in the New York Times that statistically the the greatest likelihood for a serial killer to strike are in areas of high population density. Now that's just from a that's a statistical reality. You know, it's it's not saying it any given situation, but statistically where you have high population densities is where you tend to see serial killer um, uh, 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 serial killer strike. So she calls me <laughs> calls me up, and I'm on the air in, in New Jersey, and she, she says, uh, now, Professor Bond, don't you think we, there, there's probably a serial killer on the loose? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me more and about I, the new logic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, so if you want to scare the heck out of everybody, sure. <laughs> Anything is possible. <laughs> well, you know, this Long Island serial killer case, we were just, uh, Laurie and I were talking about it before the show. And uh, Laurie, tell about what your dad said about going down to that marshland. Well, that particular area is uh, desolate and it's very heavy with brush and, uh, and, and, and uh, marsh. 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 And uh, my father always told me when I was growing up, you were not to ever go past here alone because this is a perfect place to kill somebody and leave a body. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and look, uh, talk about foreshadowing, and uh, you know that's exactly the the situation that we have. And um, well, you really have to know that area to uh, to put those bodies there because um, it's really difficult to get in and get out, and it's very mm -hmm. dangerous to walk through that area because you don't know when the land's going to give. So mm -hmm. they thought that somebody was it was somebody that was local that that did that crime. Yeah, well, I think it's someone who is intimately familiar with the area. I don't necessarily think that that person lives there anymore, but I believe that they, they either grew up there or they're, uh, they're intimately familiar, and perhaps even a summer visitor, because all, all of the, uh, the bodies that have been identified, and only five of the ten have been, been identified, but of the five that, that were, who are um, known uh, to have been prostitutes, all of them were reported missing between Memorial Day and Labor Day. So it is a seasonal aspect to this, which is... Um, Serial killer goes on a holiday. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, the, the, thank you for, for, your, for your, uh, uh, your point. They, they, their urges to kill don't come seasonally. So there's a reason for this, and, and, and one possibility that this is a seasonal visitor. That is a, you know, that is a, um, res a resort well, area. Well, then I, what area. I would do is I would alert law enforcement in other cities to be on the lookout for the same modus operandi. Bingo, bingo, and I'm sure the FBI is doing exactly that. If they're if they aren't, they're not doing their job. Well, I'll tell you, with uh, Robert Lee Yates, the Spokane serial killer who started off in Walla Walla, Washington, my hometown, by murdering friends of my family, and then leaves town, goes on Desert Storm and all that stuff, and uh, comes back, family man, five kids, good job, active in the church, killing hookers on the weekend. Is that, a, is that a new uh, rap tune? Yes, a new rap tune. But uh, as they say, they don't take a holiday. So they started looking at were there any similar murders in Germany when he was stationed there? Yes. Were there similar murders when he was stationed somewhere else? Yes. No way to directly tie him to them, but uh, the MO was the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's 
you know, the interesting thing, or one of the most compelling things about about serial uh, homicide, is that it's very different than than the standard pattern of homicide. Most homicides are committed by people who um, know their victim, and actually, it's almost seventy five percent of cases the victim and the and the killer know one another. Oh yeah. In almost in almost half of the cases, it's actually an intimate relationship. So the the um, uh, serial killers typically, not always, but typically are killing complete strangers that they target for one reason or another. They fit a profile. Um, they remind them of someone. Um, some fantasy factor, and so that is very different than than the profile of, of the average killing, which is why they're so hard to to track. If in a situation, in an average homicide situation, if you're looking for the killer, look in the same house. You know, it yeah, may well like be the husband spouse. or the wife is always the first suspect. It, exactly, but in a serial killer situation, of course, it's very different. Now, one of the problems we have is we, in, in the United States, where we have a lot of serial killers, it's almost an industry, uh, we have marginalized certain people in the society, such as, right. such as female prostitutes. We don't have a legal sex trade. They're not unionized or anything here like they are in other countries. And so they are easy prey. Uh, yep. Robert Lee Yates figured that out because the first people he killed were very well-known, well-liked couple in town. Went, Oops, big mistake. Also big mistake to shoot someone in the head with a three fifty. Seven uh, when they're in your lap, so he yep. <laughs> quickly decided to move to a twenty-two. Uh, yep, because well, Joel Rifkin, it's who easy is the to most, do. Joel, Joel Rifkin, who is the most prolific serial killer so far, at least in um, in New York, who killed seventeen prostitutes in the um, in the nineties, and is you know now safely incarcerated, thankfully. Is um, uh, has said that in 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 uh, an unabashed way. He said, "Absolutely, uh, prostitutes are easy prey. They frequently are runaways. People don't even notice when they go missing. So, if you are a, a serial killer, what better? It's it's the it's the um, you know the easy prey." Well, and also, as the uh, Homicide Task Force told me in the Spokane situation, uh, people felt good about it because as long as he's killing prostitutes, he's not killing real people. Well, there you go. There you go. And that's a very sad statement indeed. But it's very true. I mean, I've been saying that for over a year now. If the Long Island serial killer were playing, were preying upon Wall Street executives or, or bank CEOs, this would be the biggest case in the, in the history of the United States. But because he's only, only killing uh, prostitutes, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's sort of gone under the radar now for a while. There haven't been, there hasn't been much news and there really hasn't been much attention paid to it. Now, of course, uh, in in Vancouver, now when I was investigating the Robert Lee Yates case, I was hearing from the working girls about the situation in Vancouver that women were vanishing, that they, there was a serial killer, that the even the working girls had gone to the cops and said, we think it's so-and-so. And they went, yeah, yeah, so what? Mm-hmm. And we had Stevie Cameron on who wrote the incredible, huge, enormous book uh, about the hog farm there. And the, the police didn't follow up on it for uh, three reasons. One, they didn't know how. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, they didn't care, and three, they didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they just let it go, even though they actually said, yes, yeah, probably a what's-his-name doing it. Well, in New York, and this, this happened in the, um, in, in the Long Island serial killer case, and the families are outraged uh, about this. There's one of the aspects that they're outraged about is that if a prostitute goes missing, they don't even take a report on it for 10 days. It's not even, uh, she's not a missing person for 10 days because she's a prostitute. 
Well, that was the thing they used in Vancouver. They would say, you know, Sally has vanished. Yeah, well, they're always moving around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but mm-hmm. we don't have 80 people that are usually on the street suddenly decide to move around. Right. Right, exactly. In this case, which is uh, pretty horrifying. Uh, you, you you cover a lot of territory, probably because of your, your background. I, I can't remember if I asked you before, but here you are, a big shot in the media, right, with NBC and all that stuff. You go off and become a sociologist and a criminologist. What <laughs> would you wake up one day and go, I'm tired of rock and roll? <laughs> <laughs> it it actually happened almost that way. Uh, I uh, after twenty two, twenty three years or whatever in the in the advertising world and corporate world, um, I I just said I really need a different kind of uh, challenge and and stimulation in my life. And I had always uh, been interested in the in academics and and curious, very curious uh, about uh, so many things in in the world and how why things work the way they do. And um, so I just went back to school. I got initially a master's degree in criminal justice and then a Ph.D. in sociology, but concentrating in criminology. And uh, But because of my media background, almost everything that I do now, everything that I look at, um, uh, that, I, that I explore from a research perspective, tends to be through the, the media lens, the way the media present serial killers, the way the media present uh, the threat from terrorism, those sorts of things. And um, so my, my current research is, is on serial killers, but instead of, of um, looking at it the way most books do in, in this uh, genre, I'm not so much interested in why serial killers do what they do. We actually have a pretty good handle on yeah, that. They tried my, it, they liked it, they did it again. Exactly. They like to kill. Whereas what I'm looking at is why we, society, seem to have such a fascination with these morbid, macabre individuals. So it's really more a look at at society. But what I think makes it a little bit unique uh, is I'm actually talking to uh, serial killers about this very factor. And I've been corresponding now for over a year with both um, David Berkowitz. Well, he's been very helpful to a lot of researchers, Berkowitz has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the former son of Sam, uh, who now calls himself actually the son of Hope, and has become you <laughs> yeah, know, very hope religious. Hope floats. So do the bodies. And, and, um, and then the other individual uh, is Dennis Rader, oh, who called himself <laughs> Fine Torture Kill. He's a sweet and, um And they have been incredibly uh, helpful in, in um, uh, giving me vivid uh, um, interviews and, and, and uh, information to, to really round out this book. And, and uh, both of them were very, very aware of the fact that there was a public audience watching them. Oh, and, yeah. Um, it's like uh, Dan Zupanski's book, uh, The Shall We Dance Murders, Trophy Kill. Yeah. Well, yeah. Which is well, in, a, the, in that guy fact, became a horrible murderer because he wanted to be known as the most horrible murderer. Right. Yeah, well, you know, narcissism and, and uh, psychopathic uh, personality disorder Go, tend to go hand in hand, and yeah, that's the why they tend they like to defend themselves in court because they have all these delusions of adequacy. 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and um, and uh, uh, Dennis Rader, in you know, in particular, uh, one of the reasons that he was out there for almost thirty years, he got away with this for almost thirty years, is because of the fact that he was just stone cold. I mean, absolutely stone cold, um, psychopathic, uh, and and very intelligent guy, by the way. Um, but he uh, he not only does he not have any remorse. But um, he doesn't even see himself really as a serial killer. He saw himself more as a as a terrorist. He was he was terrorizing society through his through his killings and got tremendous satisfaction from it. Well, obviously, um, <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't have done it more than once uh, otherwise. Yes, Mark. From uh, from an early age, I was always fascinated by horror films. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and so we're talking fifty years. Um, from the Hammer films to the current Saw franchise, um, the only difference that I see is the is the level of on-screen depicted violence. It was mm-hmm. always there in the background. I mean, uh, I remember sneaking into the Lorena Theater when it was a theater out here in Los Angeles. Uh, with to see the corpse grinders and his pals. Oh yeah, I was the a good one. Corpse grinders, grinders and the undertaker yeah. and his pals. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the material and the fascination has always been there in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I is, are you noticing uh, a difference in the sensitization to the material because so much of it is now readily available and the depictions are so vile? You much to uh, my delight, you. of course. Well, thank you very much for for bringing that up. You you, you nailed two things that um, I'm that is bearing out through the the work that I'm doing. One is that you know part of the answer to this fascination with serial killers is they're almost like living monster movies. You know, we love to go to the Frankenstein movies and whatever as kids, popcorn entertainment. Well, there is that sort of visceral adrenaline rush that we get vicariously from these, you know, these crime stories and the particularly, you know, highly, highly uh, graphic, macabre serial killer um, stories. And when they're in the news, it becomes a living whodunit, you know, and people love to follow it. Tune in for the next installment. Which just fuels these guys because the serial killers love that stuff. They write letters to the cops, catch me if you can, blah, blah, blah. Well, not all of them do. Not all of them do. Some of them do. Some of the, the Dennis Raiders, yes. Um, uh, uh, also, Berkowitz did. They're not all. Uh, I mean, that that is a little bit of a, uh, a stereotype that they're all the Hannibal Lecter sort of evil genius, you know, type that play cat and mouse with the police and and um, and and the media. Um, it's it is true in some cases, and the ones that oftentimes become very high profile. But that's not always the case. There are those like um, uh, Joel, uh, Joel Rifkin, for example, that there was, they weren't even aware that there was a serial killer operating until they caught him and he confessed to killing 17 prostitutes. He, um, you know, he was very much under the radar. Just, well, you know, and then you have Caitlin, Caitlin Rother's book, Body Parts, where the guy walks into the police station and says, hi, I want to turn myself in. I'm a serial killer. And if you don't believe me, pulls out of his pocket a woman's breast and a kidney or something he's carrying with him. They didn't even know there was a serial killer until he turned himself in. We're going to take a 60-second exactly. break to sharpen our knives and reload our guns, and we'll be right back with Dr. Scott Bond. Hey, gang, this is Lori Downey Jr., and I've got a message just 
now safe to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio app from RadioLoyalty.com. The smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your cell phone or Apple device is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio. You know the demons of decadence. Change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. Now available free at RadioLoyalty.com. Just punch in Outlaw Radio. Oh, what excitement. Thank you, Lori. That was great. We're, I'll be back talking with Dr. Scott Bond about serial killers in just a minute. But I think I'll give a big plug for my brand new book, which you can advance order, called Body Count, the true story of the Spokane serial killer. Yes, I follow the entire investigation spanning over 25 years until the man was, dare I say it, brought to justice. I suggest you buy several copies immediately. They make wonderful holiday gifts. The book comes out in December just in time for Hanukkah. So get on the air, get on the plane, get on the boat, get on the internet. Order Body Count by Burl Bear from Pinnacle True Crime. Believe me, you and your friends will be glad you did. Uncensored. Yes, I've heard of it. A wonderful program. With Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. He's sliding home covered with rosin. Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. He's right here. And sometimes Marie Mackey, Esquire. She has trouble running without a sports bra. Produced by Magic Matthew Allen. And so does he. Yeah. <laughs> he was produced by... Who in turn is produced by Lori Downey Jr. From Long Island. She's sitting right next to you. Use your Long Island accent, talking to Dr. Scott, so he knows you're real. How you doing there, Dr. Scott? Everything all right? <laughs> Everything is great. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good. Nice wow. to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> she to, can still do the accent. To pick up from the, where we left off, um, I've never... Um, I go and I enjoy a lot of this, uh, what they call now, torture porn. <laughs> don't forget the midget porn. No, I don't like midget porn. <laughs> Those are the short subjects they run only first. Only the midgets being tortured, it's okay. But no. I never leave there, you know, wanting to go and invent some Rube Goldberg device to torture people. <laughs> mm. um, he just does it directly. And if I'm, if I'm watching or happen to catch something on the, on the news about uh, some nut job running around hacking people up, I'm never... I never get the same sense as I do when I watch a movie. That's because you're not getting a shared dream. So, and uh, do you find that the that um, people who actually uh, think that the movies are documentaries take it out into the real world? <laughs> well, I w- want to answer uh, the second part of your your question bef- before, which is also related to this, but. I think that uh, the, the, the films are becoming more and more graphic all the time. Once again, if you're not outrageous, if you're not over the top, 
you just can't break through the uh, the clutter. So I think that you know, the, the the gory graphic nature of so many films and video games. I mean, it's not just you know it's not just films, but my you you want to see gore? Check out uh, you know uh, video games, for example, um, on, you know online gaming, um, etc. And you know, serious uh, you know seriously gory stuff. And in order you know just to, again to capture an audience and and to break through the clutter of all the the media options out there, there is this uh, uh, unfortunate, I would say, trend toward having to just become much more sensationalized and, and, and graphic just to, uh, to capture people's attention. And look at the story over the summer of uh, James Holmes, you know, the mass murderer out in, in Colorado. Um, that that story got a lot of traction uh, and uh, for the huge um, you know case that it, that, it, that it was but what made it even more compelling I think for a lot of people was the backdrop the fact that it would happen during the premiere of the Dark Knight Rises he was dressed in body armor he had painted himself red he called himself the Joker you know it just it's this unbelievably over the top um, uh, uh, story that you know, it could have been a movie, and, and well, and well, will, be will be a movie, be. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, will be a movie. So I think that's, you know, that's part of it. And I have another premise that I am uh, uh, coming toward in, through my research, and I'm going to make this argument in the book, that in many ways, fiction and reality have blurred, um, so that they're really, in the minds of a lot of people, I don't think there is that much difference between James Holmes or watching the Dark Nor uh, the uh, Dark Knight Rises uh, in a certain way. It's it's entertainment. It becomes um, it becomes a uh, eye candy and uh, and an adrenaline rush and a form of almost popcorn entertainment, as I was saying before. That's tragic. And, and and now when that changes, of course, is when um, your family is affected. If the Long Island serial killer kills your sister uh, or somebody that you know, then it becomes very personal. But until then, it's just more um, uh, more Nancy uh, Grace. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's just more you know a form of entertainment. I think there's, but I think there's a, uh, an inherent difference between the, the two types of individuals we're talking about. The individual who walked into the movie theater had no illusions about getting out of there alive. The same thing with uh, the two guys that were out here in L.A. Uh, that robbed a bank, got caught, and started a huge firefight for an hour and a half. They had mm -hmm. no illusions about leaving there alive. There's a difference between the one-off crime spree or death spree and then the methodical, over a long period of time, person who hunts selects, murders, and then moves on. Difference between a mass killer and a serial killer. Oh, absolutely. Without, without a doubt. I would take it even a step further. There's, there's a very um, important distinction between even a, um, a serial killer and a spree killer. Yeah, a mass murder is a is a one a one time event that frequently, if not always, ends in the death of the perpetrator at the scene. Either they turn the gun on themselves, or they're you know death or suicide by by cop. Oftentimes, right. um, and those individuals frequently, as you said, have no illusion about getting out of there. This is like the last stand, you know, the, uh, right. the little bigghorn. Yeah, this um, is their moment. Where, Whereas serial killers 
um, are not looking to get caught, which is, is also another myth that is, that's not true. Um, and uh, they, they enjoy it, and the longer they do it, the better they, get, they are at it. And um, they have this cooling-off period in between their killings where they, they return to their seemingly normal life. And then, but however, if the, if the two worlds cross, mm-hmm. which happened with Bundy, uh, mm-hmm. Ann Rule told me the story of it. She took Ted, because, you know, Ted was her co-worker, mm-hmm. went to a, uh, a party. There was a dance. And there was a mm-hmm. girl over there. She said, Ted, ask that girl to dance. And he got real upset and started drinking and got so drunk, she had to take him home and put him to bed. She couldn't figure out what was freaking him out. Well, when mm-hmm. everything was came out, it was because this woman that she wanted him to dance with looked exactly like all of his victims. His right. two worlds collided. They try to compartmentalize their family mm-hmm. life and their serial killer life, try to keep them separate. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the two worlds crossed and it, that didn't work for him. Something, yep. something else that I've uh, oh, sorry. something else that I've noticed is that there's been a uh, a shift in the media presentation of serial killers to the anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, Dexter, Dexter is a perfect example. Yes. Now, there's as long as we're talking about the media slant, there was a time when. People fainted in the Frankenstein movies with Boris Karloff. Women swooned with Bela Lugosi as uh, Count Dracula. And the woo man, give me some fog. (laughs) And yet, to deal with those dreams, once, uh, because it is almost like a a dream state where there's safety in it. You know you're in a theater. You know you think you're going to walk out okay, no matter how scary the monster is. You get to the point where you have Abbott and Costello Frankenstein, Dracula, and the Wolfman, and they become objects of humor. You have Frankenberry cereal, Count Chocula, where these things that were once terrifying become almost lovable. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's do the Monster mm-hmm. Mash. Yeah, that's that's true. Well, the, the you know they they're, they're commodities. Some so like Frankenstein is a uh, just a, a pop culture icon now, and 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 has become you know rather rather cartoonish. I think it's going to be a little while before uh, uh, you know BTK becomes <laughs> <laughs> BTK serial. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He's not going to be laughable or funny for you know for a while yet. It will also um, because the the uh, Frankenstein Dracula and the Wolfman you know came from a, a literary tradition or from folk traditions. Well, the Jeffrey, right. Jeffrey Dahmer sausages are going to sell. Jeffrey out. Dahmer sausages. <laughs> oh, jeez. Had a little time for lunch here. Yeah. How about Son of Sam <laughs> Soup? Son of Sam Soup? No, but Son of Sam <laughs> Dog Food. <laughs> this, I, um, you know, there's another uh, uh, variation here of, of, of um, um, mass killer that we didn't really talk about is, is the spree killer, and that would be the uh, like the Malvo and Mohammed, the, the DC sh- uh, snipers. Yeah, they um, it's essentially serial killing, but in a very truncated uh, uh, time frame over just a, a you know a few days or, or, or a few weeks, and um, uh, those individuals also tend to be motivated by something different than a serial killer. You know, they, they, oftentimes there's a revenge factor or some other motivation that that's different than uh, serial killers. Ser- serial killers are are typically inner motivated by some 
powerful urge to kill that they sometimes don't even understand. And, um, for example, Dennis Rader, BTK, had a name for it. He called it Factor X. And it was that overwhelming urge to kill that when he said when it came on, there was just no denying it. He had to go out and, and uh, satisfy it. I want to shift gears here. I was in uh, beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada a couple weeks ago with uh, crime writer Kathy Scott, who was, uh, was the crime reporter, you know, for the Las Vegas uh, newspaper there for several years. And uh, then she hooked me up with uh, Deborah Gauthier, who wrote the book uh, Bright Lights, Dark Places. She was on the air just last week, and we talked about you because she was in the Las Vegas Police Department at the time of uh, what you talk about in your book, Mass Deception, Moral Panic in the U.S. War in Iraq, where you define moral panic, and you give the example of Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And so I related to her, as I will to the audience right now, what it says in your book. The so-called gang problem in Las Vegas did not appear to be related to official reports of gang Activity. A study found that despite the lack of any official police record of gang problems, in 1985, the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police formed its anti-gang task squad. In 1986, they abruptly announced that Las Vegas gang membership had grown 400% in one year and that gang members were heavily involved in the legal drug market. Local media coverage increased dramatically. And to the point where if you go interview people now, the majority of people in Las Vegas believe that there was a massive gang problem in Las Vegas. And they got, what, 13 new police cars and funding for a big gang unit. And yet empirical research shows the facts that it was 3% before the panic, 3% during the panic, 3% after the panic. And uh, Deborah, who was in the uh, Las Vegas PD, confirmed exactly what you said. Interesting. Well, I'm glad to hear that uh, that was borne out, and and that's that's an example of what we call a, a moral panic, where where the way that it's presented uh, to the public, the way that the story is presented, and the official response to it, in you know, in the case of the uh, law enforcement um, uh, practices and and uh, uh, beefing up uh, uh, resources and personnel, is an is. Uh, gross exaggeration to the reality of of the threat, and um, you know sometimes the threat doesn't even exist. You know, in the case of uh, you know a great example of a moral panic from from the past was the uh, Salem witch hunts. You know, there everyone was uh, was afraid of witches and people were dying, and yet uh, you know there really wasn't that much of a witch problem. <laughs> yeah, which witch is witch? Well, as it turns out, upon research, is that the women who were witches were primarily widows who inherited property, and if they got witchified and killed, guess who got the property? The church. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, if you go back to even you know uh, further back medieval times. They, they believed because people were, uh, at the time, the, the perception was if you committed a crime, you did something bad, that you were um, uh, possessed by a devil or, you know, a demon or something like that. And so what would they do? They would they'd put you in a, a pot of hot, burning, uh, boiling oil, or they'd burn you at the stake. But they truly believed that if you were innocent, you were going to survive. But the problem is, no one ever survived. <laughs> Everyone was Everyone guilty. Was guilty. <laughs> that, uh, that time frame produced one of my favorite historicals figures, Matthew Hopkins. Mm. Who's that? Uh, Matthew Hopkins. Um, he was one of the one of the greatest entrepreneurs. Uh, oh, was he selling tickets to the witch trials? No, he <laughs> invented an, uh, a whole host of methods to uh, to vet um, uh, witches, uh, including burning at the stake, uh, the hot rock in the hand, drowning. And she uh, weighs more than a duck. Hanging. <laughs> 
Uh, and all of them were designed for the person to die. Mm. They were all designed for them to, to, to fail the test so that he would get paid. Uh, he invented. He came up with a, with a, all kinds of uh, stories that would prove you're a witch. One of them, if you were stabbed with a knife, you wouldn't bleed. So hang on. <laughs> hang on. He invented a knife that was spring-loaded. So when you would push it against the body, the knife would retract into the handle. And only the tip would remain, and there would be a little puncture and no blood. That proves it. Um, yeah, this, wow. guy, this guy traveled through England for a number of years making a ton of cash. Yeah. Wow. And, he would, and he, would, uh, he would use the moral panic concept to get, uh, to get the town to pay him money. And then he would go to the victims. You know, maybe we can work something out. Women. <laughs> little side deal. Little side deal. <laughs> the other great one on moral panic is uh, yeah. the Apache Wars. The Apaches were the last to know about it. And uh, the reason for that was, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Scott, but what it was is that everything was so peaceful that there was no reason for the uh, cavalry to be stationed there. Uh, which meant that the uh, the businesses that relied upon the cavalry being there were going to lose money if the military was pulled out. So they began sending false reports back of an Apache uprising to get more troops. In reality, the Apaches were perfectly peaceful. They had these little towns and settlements. Everyone's getting along fine. Suddenly, they find out they're, you know, here comes retaliation for your horrible things that you haven't even done yet. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I teach uh, sociology courses and uh, at, at Drew University as well as criminology courses. And I always ask my students, uh, when, when was it that the, quote, noble red man that the, uh, the colonists were having pumpkin pie with on Thanksgiving Day, when, when did that individual become the bloodthirsty savage that had to be exterminated? You know, when, like, well, how did that all happen? When, you know? money, came, when, when money was involved. Two two words: manifest destiny. Well, that oh. was just, that was just a an excuse to to uh, uh, justify the efforts, but it was all money. Oh yeah, yeah, and and of course, back in in those days, what was what was the most valuable thing of all? Land. Yeah. Well, what was that? I think there's a quote in your your book. I don't know who said it, but it's true. And that is, as long as war is profitable, you'll see more of it. That's right. That's right. And never introduce a new product in the summer. <laughs> yes, exactly. Then thank you, Andy Card, right? <laughs> yeah, you don't do a product launch in summer. We'll wait till fall to invade. That's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. Oh, I thought that was uh, that was pretty amazing. There was uh, God, what, there was something else I was going to get. Oh, I want to plug your radio show because it doesn't conflict with mine. Uh, September 21st, 12 noon Eastern time, which would be, uh, what, 10 o'clock our time? Yeah. Yeah, three hours difference. I love the title of your show, "An Hour to Kill with Doc Bond." <laughs> now, where do people where do people hear that? Okay, my the, my university uh, where I'm a, a professor of criminology is Drew University, and that's D R E W. So, the uh, easiest way to, to tune in is just go to www dot and there will be a live link on the on the homepage for uh, to, for my show to tune in. So it's an hour to kill with Doc Bond uh, starting next next Friday. And your your blog is also getting a lot of play. A lot of people uh, getting on your your blog there. Where do they find your blog, Doc? That's on my uh, website, which is www dot 
DocBond, D-O-C-B-O-N-N.com. That's easy. And you're also on Facebook. Yes, Mark. Uh, Get right on that microphone, I noticed the um, uh, the working title for your new book. What's that? Mm -hmm. The working title for his new book, uh, Monster... Dearest? Monster Dearest, yes. Monster Dearest. No, no wooden handles. No yeah, our, handles. our fascination with serial killers and the part that I want to ask about and why we need them. Now, why do we, you know, uh, I don't need an abscess in my tooth. I don't want. <laughs> you do for the dentist. On the other side of the coin, I don't want but need my colonoscopy. Why do, why do we need Why do we need serial killers? killers? I'm glad you asked that question. The, um, there is a principle in, in sociology and, and criminology that certain things help to define the outer limits of what is acceptable and, or non-acceptable. And uh, there's a, a theory in, in, in uh, sociology called functionalism, and it argues that crime and deviance to a certain extent are functional. When somebody commits a crime and they're punished, that punishment demonstrates to both the perpetrator and the rest of society, ah, I'm not supposed to do that. I guess I can't, you know, that's where the, where the limits are. Well, I'm making an argument that serial killers really create the boundary between good and evil, man and monster. You know, once you kill someone, cannibalize, uh, necrophilia, as some of these individuals do, there's not much anything worse that a human being can do to another human being. So when I say why, uh, why we need them, I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I'm playing uh, at this notion that it sets an example, and it sets a, 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 the extreme barriers of, of what a human being can do, do to another human being. So it serves a function in that regard. Uh, that, you know, we've, we've reached monster at that point. I want to get back to something we were talking about at the very beginning of the show. You're often a commentator on many shows, including this one, also on television. Various people want you on to offer your expertise. One of the roles of, uh, primary roles of newspapers, media, etc., is supposed to be as a watchdog. Mm-hmm. Kind of be of objective, find the facts, expose corruption, and uh, help people deal with what's real. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that getting more difficult? Yes, and uh, given the fact that sensationalism is really what it's all about, it's difficult to um, uh, to talk about issues that truly are important. I'm I am very concerned about issues like domestic violence and and the thing about the Long Island case, for example, that, that really is important to me and that I like to talk about is the fact that these are marginalized women, as we were talking about before. These are, these are, are sex workers who are oftentimes considered, um, you know, on the lower rungs of society. Disposable. And, and, yeah, disposable. And um, therefore, um, uh, you know, it's almost as if they're responsible for their own plight. Well, oh, I see that a lot. Yeah, if they hadn't been if they hadn't been a hooker, she wouldn't have been killed. In if fact, it's, you know, there's a, a case uh, that uh, is in by again forthcoming uh, book where this prostitute was murdered in a thrill kill by two mm-hmm. guys who picked her up specifically to have the fun of murdering this woman, and mm-hmm. the judge ruled because she was a prostitute, it, it wasn't really murder. 
<laughs> he lost his job finally. There's enough outrage over that. But that was his ruling. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's 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 uh, mortifying, but yet I, you know, I I, I understand or, or I I believe you. It's um, it's so so. The answer to your question is yes, it is uh, more difficult, and and I, I find that when I'm talking about these sorts of cases, oftentimes the media or the or a given reporter that I'm talking to don't really want to focus on that. They want the more sensational, um, gory uh, aspect of it, not the. Um, you know the fact that there may be inequality or or um, injustice involved in the story. Yeah, we had I think it was Michael Griesbeck's uh, book where he's talking about a case and he's watching Nancy Grace and someone says, "And what about the buckets of blood found in the car?" And he's the prosecutor. And he goes, "You're going what buckets of blood?" <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're talking about things that don't even exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Again, it's it's about you know what. Uh, is going to get people excited and and um, and tune in, not what's you know really important. Hey, has any sociologist done a study on, or is there one going on now that I can't grasp this? I don't know who writes this stuff. These uh, internet chain letters, usually all in capitals with lots of exclamation points. Tell all your friends. It's urgent that they know, and it's some just totally bizarre, made up piece of crap to think, to get people all worked up and in a panic about something that doesn't exist. Right. And, oh, it's like almost like the old cash and chain letters through the you know. Yeah, mail. except they're they're like socio political weird things that aren't true and, and can get people all worked up about taxes on your mobile home that don't exist or Congress is doing this or the president's doing that. It doesn't matter who the president is, who I, the yeah. Congress is, but who writes this crap? And who and I, people just swallow people it whole. It's amazing. It. Some huh? people believe it. Yeah, Soda Head does. My God. Some people believe mm-hmm. it. Some people just pass it along because they don't make an effort. Other people are like, uh, a friend over here are rabble rousers. Yeah. I got one. <laughs> Our I friend got, Ralph, you can't see him. Ralph is here. I got one today uh, that proclaims the Israeli Secret Service has done a complete detailed analysis of Obama's uh, birth certificate and find it to be a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, is not true either. Yeah, so there is always going to be, um, there always be the people that don't make an effort, that don't think for themselves. But I, I always wonder about the mindset of people who create this stuff, knowing there's enough idiots out there who believe this. No, well, yeah. and that's the point I was making. They're, they're the idiots themselves. So they believe. Well, also, P.T. Barnum was pretty. Uh, what, what, what did he say? Sucker there's, born. There's, sucker boy and ask for every seat. And <laughs> sucker yeah, boy. Yeah, there's one born every minute and yeah. two to take them or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's it's amazing. And I, I posted on my Facebook page, I'm done with Soda Head. Uh, <laughs> you get questions like, you know, have you stopped beating your wife? Yes, no. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> there's, a, there's a really cute P.T. Barnum story. Um, some young fella who. Uh, needed some money, um, went to Barnum and persuaded him to give him a large sum of cash for the time. He took the money to the local bank, put it in the bank, waited the, the one month, came back with the cash, said, thank you, Mr. Barnum, and had enough from the interest to take care of himself. <laughs> and and uh, Barnum made some kind of quote about, well, it's about time I was the sucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, turnabout's fair play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, the things to be is there. Uh, you also talk about in uh, in your book that I have right in front of me, which is an excellent book, by the way, "Mass Deception and Moral Panic" uh, by Scott A. Bond. Got uh, rave reviews and upset some people because it's such an empirical, factual study. <laughs> we can't have that, Scott. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't play into our worldview. Uh, and that is the the uh, fear of information and the exaltation of ignorance. Mm-hmm. Yep. What the mm-hmm. hell is that all about? Well, fear fear uh, is a uh, highly motivating thing. I mean, you see it. It's of course playing out right now in this uh, in this election year. And to the extent that you can you can uh, convince a constituency that the uh, uh, whoever the perceived threat is or the the opponent um, is. Uh, 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 a threat to society, and um, is going going to uh, make sure that there's no money available when you retire or take away your liberties or, or whatever it might be. Um, you you instill fear, and nothing motivates like fear. You know, fear fear is one of the most visceral, powerful motivators of, of all. If you want to get somebody off their butt and go out and do something, scare the bejesus out of them. Well, uh, then you can always find a nice scapegoat to lay it on. Whether it's Jews, exactly. or Jews or Muslims or Kurds or, or way previous or, presidents, previous whatever it is, that's right. Well, that's the flip side of the coin. Yeah, you know, you demonize someone. You know, you you create the fear, and then, as you said, you have to have a responsible party. So you demonize and reduce that individual to sort of a cartoon cutout character, make them an evildoer or whatever you want to call them. And um, what do you do with evildoers? You you certainly can't negotiate with them. You have to blow them up. You know, <laughs> that's what you do with evildoers. Yeah, but too bad we can't have more than four, more than one war at a time. You know, <laughs> my quote of the week. <laughs> what is you know you talk about war being profitable? Aren't people kind of fed up with this? There was a book that came out in 1993 called The Future Isn't What It Used to Be about uh, postmodernism. And in 93, the author of that little book said that you could not get Americans to uh, support a big war and invasion unless you had an event the size of Pearl Harbor. And even then, you'd have about 18 months before people were sick of it. And uh, so you couldn't sustain it without public dismay past 18 months. Well, I think the guy might have been pretty damn accurate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. are, is it, uh, can we still keep buying the same old stuff? You know, remember the main. <laughs> uh, I thought it was the album, right. but I forgot. Okay, well, how, how long is this going to go on before people just aren't buying it at all? Yeah, well, you know, the, the interesting thing um, also about the the, the um, prevalence of, of media and and um, images is it cuts both ways. I mean, it, it can it can promote, it can instill fear, it can it can um, drive uh, a, a, a move toward war and violence, and it can cut the opposite way too. Uh, the Bush administration was very careful after the Vietnam War not to show uh, the, the returning caskets of, of uh, dead soldiers. And they learned from the, uh, the the Nixon administration what can happen when there's a indication that people are dying and, and maybe things aren't going so well. Well, thank you, Dr. Scott Bond. That was excellent. Thank excellent. You Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, good luck on your own radio show, An Hour to Kill with Doc Bond. <laughs> well, thank a, you so much. A great, a great title. If I can be of any assistance to you at any time, don't hesitate to call. We'll have you back on again real soon. Thank you. Thank you. You're thank welcome. you, guys. I really appreciate it. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye. What fun. What's the date next week? 
Kerry Drobin will be on the show, either in person. I got a call from her the other day. She said she may have to do it over the phone. I was looking forward to having her right here, wrapped in leather. She never looked better. She's got... Yeah, she's about to... She's a crime hottie, all right. So she'll be on next week. Magic, Matt Allen, and the Demons of Decadence, including, but not limited to, Ralphie and Sirius Vic, Lester Burrow Bear, Mark C.G. Boyer, Lakey Lloyd Addy Jr., and, of course, 